You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Over the years, there have been various TV shows that have tried to capture the drama of the courtroom scene. The drama that some of us have witnessed firsthand and perhaps been a party to in differing ways. But these TV shows have become infamous in the plot lines, the twists, and the turns. Crimes that have been committed and the people accused of doing them. From the days of Perry Mason and Matlock, as some of you think back and remember, to more recent shows, Law and Order or Boston Legal. These shows are in abundance, and often these shows do not disappoint. They create the sense of drama, filled with intrigue, suspense, twists, and turns, and then a a sense of justice as the true offender is identified and sentenced accordingly and appropriately. All of this within 60 minutes with a heavy dose of commercials spread throughout. But as a lot of you understand, real-life courtroom drama is not so neat, and it does not end so quickly. It does not happen so nicely. We recognize this. It drags on and on. The system is backlogged with more cases than it has judges to hear them or attorneys to represent them. The real situation is it's time-consuming, it's frustrating. I remember listening to a podcast that did an expose of a judicial system in a major city in the United States, and they walked with him for just under a year and interviewed everybody in the process, from the defense attorneys to the prosecuting attorneys to the judges to the victims Uh, to the criminals, everybody in between. And this whole process, and here is the conclusion that I came to at least. Lord Jesus, please come. Please come. It is a jacked up system. Now, it's a system by which I'm thankful for by comparison to other countries, but nevertheless, it's tragic to see. When we think about this real-life courtroom drama that's time-consuming and costly and doesn't end with quick, satisfactory justice. It's a lot what's been happening like in the book of Hosea. Hosea, this 14-chapter prophecy collection, is dramatic. It's provocative. It's the kind of things that some of you, perhaps with younger children, are like, wow, I'm not sure I want you reading this with my kid around. It's in the Word, though. All these biblical crimes and compelling evidence and spiritual DNA to confirm who did what. And yet, it doesn't wrap up quickly and nicely. In these 14 chapters, you have the collection of 25 years of Hosea having a conversation with the people of Israel. 25 years. 
coming back again and again and again, all of which is illustrated provocatively and powerfully by his own marriage to Gomer, a prostitute who leaves his, her husband and goes and sleeps with other men, only to have to have her husband come and buy her back to love her yet again. To those of you who are new, perhaps even this morning, the book of Hosea found in the Old Testament just to the right of what's known as the major prophets, the first of the last 12. We come now to this message today. In two weeks, we'll have a final sermon on the entire book of Hosea. But for today, we come to this message, which I've titled, God, the Persistent and Patient Husband. We'll see this in Hosea chapters 11 through 14. If you're looking for one massive point, one summary point, you can write down and then go back to sleep. Here it is. There is no Savior but God. There is no Savior but God. Let's first see, though, the case. Like in a courtroom setting, the case is presented. Number one, the case is presented in Hosea, starting in chapter 11, we see this chronicling of their sin. Look with me as we survey these last four chapters. Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, says the following, Ephraim, another term for Israel, has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah, the southern part of Israel, still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So the people in Israel in the northern part are known for their deceit. They're also, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, they're known for their ungodly alliances. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria. The oil is carried to Egypt, meaning their supplies are taken there. It's not just their deceit and ungodly alliances, it's also their dishonesty. Jump down to verse 7 of chapter 12. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. It's basically describing the idea of someone who is weighting something as to its weight determines its value, but his scales are off so the, so the merchant can keep more money for himself. These people are known for their dishonesty. Look at verse 8 of chapter 12, what it says there. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. What's he doing here? He's showing their dishonesty. And then also in verse 8 now, they're boasting. It's not just their boasting, it's also their pride. These two often go hand in hand. Look at chapter 13, verse 6. It says, when they had grazed, they had become full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. They were boastful, and they were proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Look at chapter 13, just a few verses earlier, verses 1 and 2, their idolatry. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt before through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. What's he talking about here? He's talking about their idolatry. Now, friends, 
we need to just take a minute to talk about the irony of idolatry. The irony of idolatry. For those of you who are not familiar with idolatry, what you see here in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, is a historical description of how they would take things that, like metal, like silver, like gold, like wood, they would take these materials, they would fashion them, they would shape them into these images of gods that they imagined were like. And they devoted themselves to these things. They would offer, literally put dishes of food around them, and they would offer prayers to them. And in some of the worst cases, they would actually take their children and sacrifice them and kill them as offerings to show their commitment to these gods that they had made themselves out of material that God created, the one true only God. The insanity of idolatry is to take something so undeniably from God and make it a replacement for God. Now, before we look at these people and go, wow, I'm so glad we're not like them. I mean, we're obviously educated. We, we would know better, most of us at least. Friends, idolatry is rampant by all of our understanding of idolatry. Idolatry is this expression of how we take things that God has given them and give them of such value that they become our gods. Sometimes good things that God gives become God things to us. You know, for example... You have a desire as a single person to be married. That desire is not the problem. But to make that desire so ultimate that you'll make all other things serve that desire. Having a job is not a problem. A gift from the Lord providing for you and or your family. But to make that job your source of identity and affirmation, your sense of security and self-worth, is just to do the same thing with these things that God has given, desires or provision, and make them godlike. Meanwhile, God's sort of looking back with arms folded going, what are you doing over here? Do you not see that those things came from me and yet you used them to deny me? You used them to replace me. The insanity of idolatry is that it takes good gifts from God and uses them to replace God, to become substitute gods that, listen to me, that never deliver. Never deliver. So this case is being presented. You could think of it like Hosea, an old school, Old Testament matlock, a Perry Mason in the courtroom, presenting the case got to imagine how difficult it would be to sit on this stand as these crimes are read off. And he does say there's going to be consequences. There's suffering. He talks about in chapter 12, verse 9, their poverty. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and I will again make you dwell in tents. Oh, man. That's, that's, that's a struggle. They came from tents, and they have this, all these places appointed to them. He's like, you're going to go back living in tents. You're going to be poor. Chapter 12, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 7 and following, he talks about some are going to die. 
ultimate consequence, losing their life. And then others in chapter 11, verses 5, you just look at there with me. Chapter 11, verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. You want a king? All right. I'm going to give you an oppressive king because they refuse to return to me. Let me tell you what happens in history so that you know this is a prophecy of what God's like, I told you so. They basically feel this rising reign of this Assyrian king north of them. And he comes in and he first invades the land that some of the tribes of Israel lived in. So what ends up happening is some of the other tribes are like, man, we need like somebody stronger than Assyria, so we're going to go to Egypt, the people that had previously put them in slavery, since we have such a good history together. And we're going to go hang out with them. But all that ends up happening is they basically lose their possessions in Egypt for those who go there. And meanwhile, Assyria is raised up and basically overruns them for the next 20 years and overruns them in such a way that they basically take a numbers of their people by the thousands into slavery. And then to just make matters worse, they take a number of people that they've kidnapped from other parts of the land and put them in their now land and say, now we want you all to get married, date and get together. This is the case that's being presented. But now, secondly, the invitation is extended. The invitation is extended. I wonder how many of you are in marriages that struggle. I wonder how many of you know others who have bad marriages. I often tell singles at Grace Church, it's better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. And the truth is, marriage is ideally wonderful, realistically somewhere between wonderful at times and difficult at other times. But my concern is not the difficulty of marriages. My concern is the people who offer help. I have to tell you how entertaining it is for me for the sake of sanity. When people come alongside others who are in difficult marriages, being right-hearted perhaps and their desire to help, offer quickly advice. As if to say, oh, I can see quickly your problem and I can so quickly and easily provide the solution and uh, you're welcome. All these marriage experts coming out of nowhere, some of which people have never actually been married themselves. It's like people who have never had kids giving all the parents advice on parenting. And like, it might be best if you just put your hand over your mouth and be quiet. I'm reminded of this same practice during the uh, kind of the, the hot season, if you will, of COVID. COVID was a crazy time for us, and it's by no means gone. But it was funny during the time of COVID, everybody became an honorary medical doctor. If they weren't an honorary medical doctor, they became an honorary lawyer. Or if they weren't a lawyer, they became an honorary uh, constitutional legal expert, guest professor. And I was like, oh, where have you been our whole life? Thank you for arriving. What a gift it is to have you here. 
Why do I say all this? Because if we're honest, life is complicated. Relationships are difficult. And they're not quick, quick fix solutions that just make things go away. In the book of Hosea, you have a marriage between Hosea and Gomer illustrating the relationship between God and his people. And it is not a quick fix. And yet, God in his grace, through his servant, extends an invitation that I want us to see because it shows that there is hope in the midst of so much tragedy and difficulty that there is a possibility of that story not being the final story. The marriage that God had with Israel in times of Hosea was complicated, ran through multiple generations. It took a long time to address Look at what the Lord does, because I think this is a lesson for even us today with what he does to the spiritual runaways. Go to chapter 14. The first thing God wants us to learn for anybody who can identify with the people of Israel as a spiritual runaway is to realize your helplessness. Realize your helplessness. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. The first thing that they had to recognize is they had to recognize they were helpless to fix their condition. That is as true then as it is 2,800 years later sitting here in this room in Miami. To those who are far from the Lord and do not even know him as followers of Christ, and those who do know him, but perhaps in different ways privately have rebelled, the first step is to realize your helplessness. The second thing that we see that the Lord is teaching here to spiritual runaways, is to confess and forsake your sin. Confess and forsake your sin. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Jump down to verse 8 of chapter 14. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. There's opportunity here for them to recognize they've got to not only understand, realize their helplessness, they also have to confess and forsake their sin. It's so encouraging to me to see that God is willing to speak honestly about the problem and encouragingly about the possibility of a solution. That whatever season we're in doesn't have to be the final season and stage, which is why he then takes it back to chapter 12, verse 6, return to God. 
So you're not just realizing your helplessness. You're not just confessing and forsaking your sin. You're returning to God. Look at chapter 12, verse 6. He says, so you, by the help of your God, can't do this on your own, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. This dependence on the Lord not just the forsaking of sin, not just the turning from it, but this returning, as it says, O Israel, to the Lord your God, chapter 14, verse 1. As it is, same thing here, by the help of your God, waiting continually for your God, Hosea chapter 12, verse 6. Here's some lessons we can learn from this. First of all, humility. Humility comes when a person takes personal responsibility for what they have done wrong. Humility comes when a person takes personal responsibility for what they have done wrong. That's a byproduct of the reality of this process. Humility. Secondly, gratitude. Gratitude comes when a person appreciates what they have is not based on what they deserve, but based on God's grace. Gratitude comes when a person appreciates what they have is not based on what they deserve, but instead on God's grace. So you want to be humble and grateful. My wife and I, this past week, uh, we had learned of some things in some other people's lives and had seen some things firsthand in some other people's lives that honestly was very difficult to see. Uh, things that we saw physically, things that we just knew of circumstantially, very difficult to see. And there's a tremendous sense of the reality of gratitude that, God, we don't deserve anything more than they deserve. But in the mystery of whatever you have decided to do, you have not let that circumstance fall upon us. We are grateful for that. We thank you for that. We don't say that in pride. We do not think we're better than because that would not be humble. We think in solidarity we are just like that and don't deserve anything better, and yet you and your grace have given us more. So the opportunity of what comes when responding to being a spiritual runaway, of realizing your helplessness, of confessing and forsaking your sin, of returning to God, is the corresponding response of humility and gratitude. So here's a question. How's your humility? How's your gratitude? Third and final, love is demonstrated. The love is demonstrated. Look at how God has loved, first in the past. Go back to chapter 11. I want you to see what he does in verse 3 and 4. This is one of many places he does it. He's given this contrast. Verses 1 and 2 like verse 2, for example, the more they were called, the more they went away. It's classic. Like the more you told them the right thing to do, the more they did the wrong thing. They kept sacrificing, kept their burnt offerings. Look at verse 3, though. Look at the love of God. Yet. Yet. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I, verse 4, led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I 
became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. Friends, the imagery that God is using here is an imagery that we can, a lot of us relate to. It's this imagery of parenting. Like God, this perfect heavenly father, commands them and they rebel against him. The entire time, though, that they're rebelling, God is continuing to provide for them. Some of you know what this is like personally. You know what it's like to grow up and think, my parents don't know any better. They're idiots. They're foolish. They're disconnected. They don't have a clue. They don't know the truth. I, in my long 16 years of life, I'm super intelligent, very well informed, very well read, vastly experienced. And I might smile at my mom when she goes into her moment. I might bless his heart, say to my father when he has his moment, but I obviously know better. And then you go live your alternate life. And then what's up happening? All of a sudden, you're like, 23, 25, some of us are late bloomers, you know, maybe 27. You're like, huh, when did mom get so smart? When did dad grow up? Uh, Just so you know, they were like that the whole time. It was you. Meanwhile, what's shocking is that what you don't find with parents is, listen, I have clothed you and fed you long enough. You're 15. You want to listen? Fine. Find your own place to live. Find your own clothing, your own food, your own shelter. They keep providing, keep providing, keep providing. Trust me, I know on behalf of your parents, they're thinking, I don't want to provide at all. What you see of the character of God here is his love for them, not because of them, in spite of them. Friends, can you take a minute and think back on your past? of how the Lord has provided for you in ways that maybe if you would just stop and consider, you would see it and maybe humbly appreciate it. It's not just God's love for them in the past. It's also God's love for them in the present. Jump down to verse 8, chapter 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like... Adma, how can I treat you like Zebium? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Now that might sound confusing in some of your ears, because as we've been reading the last couple of weeks, you see the consequence that God tells them will happen. You're like, wait a minute, is like God confused? He's talking about himself? It's learning to differentiate between discipline and destroying. God disciplines his people, but he does not destroy his people. He disciplines them, as Hebrews 12 says, as a faithful, loving father. He does not destroy them so as to crush them and prove that he was right and they were wrong, as if God is some insecure deity who feels disrespected, and he's going to teach you a lesson. We thank God that he is not like us. 
Because if we're honest, that's exactly how we would treat us. It's not just God's love in the past, God's love in the present. It's also God's love in the future. Jump to chapter 14. He says in verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root in the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Verse 9, whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. A number of you are in the community group on Wednesday night that meets at my house. If you're new to Grace Church and you want to test drive a community group at Grace Church that meet Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday nights, come to my house Wednesday nights. You're welcome to come. For those of you who have been a part of our community group, presently or in the past, you know that we study through the gospel-centered life. And you know what the opening sort of lesson there that becomes the orientation reference throughout the time that we study it together is this picture, which I don't have the whiteboard wall in my house, so you'll have to work with me here. But there's this picture that basically describes that at the point at which we become a Christian, we have a, some understanding of the holiness of God and our sinfulness and rejection of God in our life, but the greatness of God in His Son that He provides as a Savior. And for some of you, you don't even understand that. Some of you don't even understand what He's talking about here, which is in chapter 14, He speaks of a future time when He will provide rescue for His people. And His people so commonly thought of that rescue as being a territorial, geographic place for them by which they could finally set up shop and claim gotcha to all the nations. But instead, God sends his son, and the first thing his son says is that to repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he speaks about a kingdom that comes through faith in him, that all those who put their faith in Christ, the son of God, for the forgiveness of their sins, will be forgiven. For those of you who are Christians, you know this. It is the cross that gives you confidence that the promise God makes here, he keeps. But here's the kicker. And I go back to that diagram, that explanation. Some of you are so confused by it, so let me explain. We go back to the life of a person living before the Lord in rebellion. And at some point in God's mysterious grace, opening their eyes, they understand the truth of two things. God is holy and I'm not. God is great, and I'm jacked up. And if we leave things like that, I'm going to be in trouble for the rest of my life into eternity, paying the price for my sins for an eternity in hell. But God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 verse 4, because of his great love, while we are dead in our trespasses sins, gives his love to us through Christ his Son, that all those who believe in him by faith are forgiven. And so at that point of believing that, we have this view of the cross, like, man, thank you, Jesus. But here's the deal. 
throughout the Christian life, the more you grow in your understanding of the greatness of God, which doesn't stop, and if we're all going to be very honest as Christians, and I wanted to say this in front of all the non-Christians who are here, we want to be honest about this in front of you, the presence and sometimes the persistence, not the power, not the penalty, but the presence of our sin still being present makes us all the more appreciate Jesus Christ. So as that chasm grows bigger, holiness of God is growing bigger, our sinfulness is growing bigger, that chasm is spreading wider, the greatness of Jesus seems even more significant. So here's a question. How great does Jesus seem to you today? How you answer that question is largely tied to how well you understand who God is and how well you understand yourself. If you understand those two well, you can see what's going on in Hosea, a promise of a rescue where his people will sprout, where they will flourish because of his Son, the Savior. What an encouragement that is to us. For those who are not Christians, if this is you, consider the one true God as the Bible describes him. See how God is with his people. See the truth he teaches, the justice he offers, and yet the forgiveness he promises and the love he demonstrates Know that he would accept you because he loves to be merciful to the brokenhearted. For those of you who are spiritual runaways, rebellious and backslidden Christians, if that is you, consider the discipline of the Lord. See it as a loving pursuit. God does not leave you and abandon you, but he comes after you. See his patience with you. See his love towards you. Hosea is being a tender prophet, writing to a backslidden nation of backslidden people. How applicable is that today for God's people still? For those of you who are faithful Christians, if that is you, what confidence you can have in your God, not only in loving him, but also in commending him to others, both your Christian and your non-Christian friends, your faith is fueled even more when you learn how God works behind the scenes patiently. You and I have a view of how other people should change, usually instantaneously or immediately or pretty quickly. And God does a work in people's lives over decades of time. So friend, be patient. As God is at work in your life, so he is at work in other people's lives. Let that fuel your faith in him. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.